You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Grace Community Church. My name is Neil Manning. I'm one of the elders here at Grace, and it's my privilege to share this time with you this morning as we turn to our sermon. Um, normally, you would be hearing, as was mentioned before, uh, Pastor Brad Talley uh, up in this, this pulpit, but he's uh, away on sabbatical. He will actually be back next week uh, to preach before again taking the rest of July to continue his rest. And uh, we want to pray that he's both refreshed and productive as he prepares in the fall to, to teach some classes at uh, the South Wake Bible Institute. And I'd love to be able to talk to you more about that perhaps after the service. Uh, But speaking of preparation, uh, you wouldn't believe how much I had to cut out of our time together this morning. But I have heard Pastor Brad say in the past that the worst sermon you'll ever preach is the one in which you share everything you've learned from a passage. The good news for you is this won't be my worst sermon. (laughs) I'm not sure if that's good news for me. Uh, but the good news is um, there's much more to learn. And I hope, even if your home group is not meeting this week, that you contact your home group leader and have him send you the, the nutty study notes so that uh, you can continue to, to study, uh, look at those questions, d- dig into Scripture all that much more, and I hope it's a benefit to you in your personal study. And since we're already talking about Pastor Brad, uh, you may know, if you know him well, you may already know that he enjoys anything related to Winston Churchill. I'm talking about in his home, he's got Churchill's multi-volume, big autobiographical set. Uh, he, he reads, watches movies. Perhaps you, in the last year or so, have read a book or watched a movie that took place around Churchill's time in office or during the war while he was in office. Perhaps uh, you saw that movie, and it sounded something like this I'm going to describe for you. The year was 1940. Allied troops had just been completely rebuffed by the Nazis. And then they evacuated, or they retreated, in hopes of an unlikely evacuation. If you're familiar with this, you probably already know that this took place in Dunkirk. And the film by that name shows... Not a lot of fighting, not a lot of action. It's more of a drama. And in that drama, the tension is waiting, as these soldiers are waiting for an unexpected rescue. We're in a series on the book of Isaiah, and in a similar way, we find King Hezekiah facing a no-win situation. War has come to his front door, and the tension is with him learning to wait and to trust God for a rescue from an unlikely source or an unlikely way. The question that Hezekiah and all of Jerusalem wrestled with was this, can we trust God? And by the way, if you're not sufficiently riveted by that analogy between the film of Dunkirk and our tie-in to Isaiah and Hezekiah, I will admit, I asked my wife, 
for illustrations that not only men, but women could identify with. And this war movie was the first thing she thought of. <laughs> How great is that, right? Am I a lucky man or what? So as you turn or swipe to your, in your Bible to our passage, let's turn to Isaiah 37, beginning in verse 14. And as you do so, I'll, I'll make a brief note about the reading you'll see on the screen. In the ESV, as well as many other English translations, you'll see the Lord, where Lord is in all caps. And that is actually a substitute, a substitute for the Hebrew tetragrammaton, which is the four-letter word that is transliterated as Yahweh, the self-revealed name of God, the God who is, the identity of the covenant-keeping God. So, for our passage, I remove the substitute, the Lord, in place of the original Yahweh. I think it's important to do that for two reasons. First, we get to read the, the passage as God reveals who He is. But it is also important that we look at the contrast between Yahweh and the gods of the nations, a comparison that Assyria will make and one that will become clearer as we investigate the text. So as is our custom, if you will please stand with me out of respect for the word of God. I'll be reading Hezekiah's prayer from Isaiah 37, verses 14 to 20. Hezekiah received from the hand of the Assyrian messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of Yahweh and spread it before Yahweh. And Hezekiah prayed to Yahweh, O Yahweh of armies, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Yahweh our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Yahweh. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we do indeed thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it now as it goes forth. Give us hearts to hear lives that obey, that all that is done here this morning be done to your glory and be acceptable worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold. That's the opening line in Lord Byron's poem, The Destruction of Sennacherib. Some of you may remember that from your days in history in high school, or I'm sorry, English. Um, but here, as we look into how this sheepfold is about to be devoured, I'm going to give us first some context. How does this passage in Isaiah fit into our larger study? Then I'm going to give us a brief, brief walkthrough of both chapters 36 and 37. Then from that, we'll be able to draw out principles that God is teaching us today. And it's my prayer that by the end of this sermon, we will all be able to answer the question in our title, 
and confidently assert that I trust in Yahweh alone. He, because he is trustworthy, he acts in covenant faithfulness to his word for his glory and our good. So let me begin by giving you a little bit of context. First, literary context. You'll note quickly that if you read through these next four chapters, 36 through 39, it reads differently than the other portions of Isaiah. That's because it's a narrative. A narrative structure versus a poetic structure. Now, twice in the last month or so, we've heard Dr. Whitley uh, tell us that in poetic structure, in music, he's given us words like strophic and modal. Things that, words that we're not very familiar with, with. And last week, Dr. Calvert informed us and reminded us that Jewish poetry used a repetition of thought more than a repetition of sound or syllable that we're familiar with. Here, though, Isaiah simply recounts history, but not mere history. Oswald, in his commentary of Isaiah, tells us, quote, This section is not placed here accidentally or haphazardly. It is located consciously to provide the climax to all which the prophet has said about the folly of trusting the nations, end quote. It acts as a bridge to connect all that has come before to all that will come after. In the previous chapters, 7 through 35, we are met with the questions, is God in control and can he be trusted? In the later chapters, 40 through 66, God promises future judgment and a rescuer who will provide ultimate salvation. Sandwiched in between are these four chapters that demonstrate God is sovereign. He can be trusted. And he does bring judgment and ultimate salvation because he has demonstrated his trustworthiness. Hezekiah is called to trust God in three life-defining crises. We'll look at the first one this week in 36 and 37, and next week we're going to look at the other two in chapters 38 and 39. So that's the literary context. What about the historical context? What brought us to this point? We should remember this map that shows the nations staged around Judah uh, during the reign of Judah's king Ahaz. If you remember Hezekiah's father Ahaz, he sought alliances, help, not only alliances with Assyria, but also with Egypt, basically anybody other than than, the God, than God, Yahweh. Even though all along God had been saying, trust me alone for your salvation. Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, along with every nation in the area, had fallen to Assyria. And about this time, uh, Assyria's king dies. So if you're unfamiliar with life under an evil regime, sorry, no political jokes about American politics. If you're familiar with that, when, an, with a, when a tyrant dies, you rebel. This is your opportunity to throw off the yoke of oppression for your, from your nation. And that's exactly what took place all around the region. Hezekiah was no different. When Sennacherib ascended to Assyria's throne, he asserted himself fiercely, first moving to the east against Babylon before turning west against Judah. He took over the entire territory of Judah except for Jerusalem. 
And by the time we joined Hezekiah in around 701 BC, the political landscape has changed just a little bit. Yeah, changed just a little bit. It looks like the Fortnite storm has reached its final circle. <laughs> Jerusalem and Egypt were next. Biblical and Assyrian records actually indicate that Sennacherib had conquered 46 fortified and walled cities in Judah. At the time we joined Hezekiah in Jerusalem, Sennacherib is performing mop-up operations in the city of Lachish, a heavily fortified city several miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. From 2 Kings and Chronicles, we're told that we read that Hezekiah pays off Assyria to stop attacking. Sennacherib is happy to receive this payment, but he's not through. He sends a taunt to, to Jerusalem. It's at this point that we join Hezekiah in Jerusalem in chapter 36. The key players are laid out for us. Hezekiah, king of Judah, is penned up in Jerusalem. Sennacherib sends three heads of state. Isaiah mentions one, Rabshakeh. Rabshakeh. Many of you know that in a few days we're expecting another little boy. He may come sooner than, uh, than a few days. He may come today. But the poor guy doesn't have a name yet. Is Myra in here? What do you think? Do you think Rabshaka? Rabshaka would be good? I'm, I'm getting some east west. Th I'm getting thumbs down? No thumbs down? Yeah, I think you're right. This guy is no friend of Judah, no friend of Yahweh. Regardless, actually, Rabshaka is more of a title than a name. And regardless of what it meant, he was the chief spokesman for Assyria's blasphemies against Yahweh. With him is an army, but only part of Sennacherib's full army. One fact that we would otherwise overlook in our reading is the location that this challenge came. It's the same location that Isaiah first challenged King Ahaz decades earlier, challenging him to trust God. Yahweh promised protection and a sign, but still Ahaz rejected him. Now here again, a challenge has been given. This time, it's to not trust Yahweh. No specific promise of protection has been given. Will this king follow in his father's footsteps, or will he trust God? We see the drama unfold in three phases. Challenge, prayer, response. And then these three are repeated. Challenge, prayer, response. But we're going to look at those together both challenges, both, response, uh, both prayers, and both responses in that order. The challenge came first by the Rapshika. His message was of psychological warfare. His message was this, In whom do you now trust? Hezekiah, where did you get this confidence to rebel? I know you can't be trusting in Egypt because that plan will backfire. You can't be trusting in your military might because there is none. We could give you 2,000 horses to attack us and you still couldn't defeat the smallest regiment in our army. So far, he's two for two. There is a common thread in both of Sennacherib's challenges, first through the Rapshika and later in a letter 
in which he basically pulls an Arnie and says, I'll be back, and your God can't save you. That common thread in both is that he reviles trust in Yahweh. He said, you can't be trusting in Yahweh because Hezekiah removed his places of worship all around the countryside. Yahweh is the one who asked us to come and take you guys over. Yahweh cannot be trusted to save you because no God has been able to save its nation from us. Assyria had the habit of talking their way into victory without the sole rest on warfare. Sennacherib thought his logic was airtight. He was going to demoralize the men of Jerusalem and cause them to surrender. Had he been right, had Judah gone to Egypt for help, and did Egypt prove unreliable? Yes. Had God, excuse me, had Hezekiah removed places of worship for Yahweh? Actually, he had. But he did this in obedience to the Lord's command that only in the place where he puts his name are you to bring your sacrificial and corporate worship. At this time, it's in the temple at Jerusalem. As an aside, we should note that even though we are no longer limited by location in our sacrificial and corporate worship, we cannot simply choose any way to worship God that we please. Not only are we to worship the right God, but we are to worship God rightly. Regardless of how sincere our worship is of the Lord, He does not give us the authority to determine what he should find acceptable. Getting off my soapbox, back to Sennacherib. He was well informed. He was aware of Hezekiah's reforms, religious reforms, and saw it as a weakness to exploit. He thought their God must be weak because his national religion had diminished. I can convince them not to trust Yahweh to fight for them. What he did not consider, though, is that Yahweh is not like the gods of the nations, which are no gods at all. So how did Hezekiah of Jerus- and all of Jerusalem respond to these challenges? To their credit, they were silent before their enemy and humbled themselves before God. Rather than railing against the opposition, John Calvin exhorts us to remember that, quote, amidst bitter strife and confused noise, the truth will not be heard, end quote. Perhaps we ought to remember that the next time we're tempted to take the social media in a Twitter storm of protest. The two times Hezekiah received these challenges, he humbled himself and went to the temple to seek the Lord. His progression is steady. It's a steady strengthening of faith as he learns to trust Yahweh. Early, he had... Reformed worship, he had formally worshipped God without much opposition. But while he also sought alliances and assistance from Egypt. Now he was not only, he not only asks Isaiah to pray, but he himself prays earnestly. It's important to understand why they pray. As Assyria mocked God, so Hezekiah prays for the sake of God. 
Now the settled faith of Hezekiah was praying God would act on behalf of his own glory. He knew that when God acts for his glory, he is acting for his people's good. In response to Hezekiah's prayer, God gives promises. First, if Sennacherib thinks he can mock God by the power of words, then it's by a word, a whisper, a rumor that his downfall will come. God promises that the army would not attack, that in fact there would be no siege against Jerusalem, and Sennacherib would turn, return home and die. He promises that Zion will soon stand over and mock her would-be attacker. Yahweh heard the attack on his glory and promised to demonstrate his sovereignty, his control over all things. Just as Assyria put hooks in the noses or the jaws of its captives, chained them together and led them away from their home, never to see their homes again, so God will put his hook in their nose and lead them away to have victory over his enemies. Finally, God gives a sign. This is not a sign of what he will do, but a sign of remembrance. Like the rainbow or an Ebenezer, the stone of remembrance. God's telling them, when you leave this city and begin to cultivate your farms and bring food in again, remember what I did here today. Remember that it was Yahweh who defeated your enemies. So was God faithful to his word? Absolutely. The account in Kings tells us that it took place that night. That night, God struck down 185,000 Assyrian troops. There's no evidence they ever built up siege works against Jerusalem. They never had a chance. Herodotus, the ancient historian, actually places the Assyrian army down towards the delta of Egypt when all of a sudden there was an infestation of rats, perhaps bringing the plague. We don't know. The how or the means by which God used to wipe them out is not all that important. We know that he has all tools at his disposal. He can use any sword. Interestingly, Assyrian records and ornate wall images depict Sennacherib had conquered 46 walled cities in Jerusalem, including the siege at Lachish, but never mentions the, capt the capture of Jerusalem. Instead, they tell how Sennacherib sealed Hezekiah behind the city walls like a caged bird. No mention of its capture and no mention of his losses. But as propaganda, there wouldn't be, would there? Three verses is all Isaiah records of the devastation of the army. Very anticlimactic. A simple conclusion, right? But what does that tell us? It tells us the point of this drama is not the destruction of Sennacherib, but what took place between God and Hezekiah. We read that final verse and may think that Sennacherib died immediately after he returned home to Assyria. It was 20 years before God finally decided to enact his final judgment on his life. In our Marvel movie world, 
We came to this war expecting action. Instead, we find drama that we can understand all too well. To trust God or the deceit of the enemy. So what's the purpose in all this? Why did God have Isaiah write a historical account that we already have in two other books of the Bible? How do these chapters in the Old Testament relate to you and me as believers in the New Testament era? What is God telling us? For starters, I think it helps to remember the purpose of this narrative is a bridge. It answers the question in the first half of Isaiah, is God in control and can he be trusted? God answers with a resounding, I am in control of all things. You can trust me alone for your salvation. This bridge prepares us for what's coming ahead. When he promises future judgment, a future rescuer who will bring ultimate salvation, we know that he is faithful to bring it to pass. We can point back here and say, God does hear our prayers. He does act in faithfulness to his word, both to bring judgment and salvation to his remnant. And when he acts for his glory, he is acting for our good. With that in mind, here are some principles this text can teach us today. God is pleased to answer our prayer. God acts for his glory and our good. God is faithful to his word, both for judgment and for rescue. Now, I had a hard time deciding how to bring this together. It's, it's one principle. It's three distinct points, but they're related. You can't separate them. They're intertwined. It is said that prayer moves the hand of God and that God ordains the means as well as the ends. That is, he declares prayer to be the impetus to his actions. Evangelism as God's mechanism for bringing the gospel to the nations. The local church to accomplish his work in the world today. To better understand this balance of God acting for his own sake and how our prayer relates, Oswald again offers this remark about Hezekiah. The repentance and trust do not cause the deliverance. Rather, the cause is God's faithfulness to his own character. However, without human responses, there is no deliverance. There's a balance here in God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Would God have been justified in allowing Assyria to overrun Jerusalem? Of course. He promised to bring judgment to his people for decades if they did not repent. He was under no obligation other than his own gracious word to save anyone. God always acts according to his sovereign decree, yet he has chosen to do so in response to our prayers. Was God not going to destroy Assyria if Hezekiah didn't pray? He still would have been faithful to his word to judge Assyria and to save a remnant. But maybe Hezekiah and those with him in Jerusalem would not have been the ones to receive the blessing. At least from our perspective. 
God is powerful enough and faithful to bring about his promises. He will be praised. You and I can bring him glory either in a demonstration of his judgment or in demonstration of his blessing. I don't know about you, but I would much rather entrust myself to him knowing that when he acts for his glory, it's also for my good. Does this mean that once someone becomes a Christian, that all his troubles disappear? You know the answer. Not at all. Many of the heroes of faith we find in Hebrews 11 died without ever seeing the fulfillment of God's promises. Like Isaiah, who after decades of faithful service, died by being sawn in two. So please be careful. Anytime you tell anyone in the midst of their hardship, just wait, I'm sure God has something better in store for you. I know your heart is to encourage, but let's encourage in the truth of God. That something better may not come in this life. John Calvin remarks, We must not expect to be free from every annoyance, but ought rather to be prepared for, en- prepared for enduring very heavy afflictions. The Lord does not always recompense our piety by earthly rewards. In Jesus' high priestly prayer for his disciples, he said, quote, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That is, Father, don't remove them from trouble, but preserve them through it. Pastor Dr. Crawford Loritz puts it this way. Sometimes God chooses to demonstrate his power by supernaturally changing our circumstances. And sometimes he chooses to leave us in hard, difficult places, but gives us his sustaining power. God's plans are rarely what we expect. But it is this struggle to reconcile what God has said and what we see that produces growth in our faith and holiness in our lives. He is pleased to bring about the promised salvation of his people and to work for the good of those who love him and are called by him. But what's the purpose here and now for these hard and difficult places? I don't know what you have endured recently, but it was only a few months ago that I was unemployed. Again. Second time in two years. (laughs) And this time with a growing family. Really, God? Why? What lesson are you trying to teach me? Sometimes it's not about what you need to know but who you need to become. Have you ever considered that? 2 Corinthians tells us that as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In Romans 5, we understand that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. A better job, relief from grief over losing a loved one, a cure for a health scare, a better this, a better that, 
our comfort and our rescue will not be found in this life. But any grace that we experience is a foretaste of salvation to come. So if you're struggling to know how to pray, what to pray for, entrust yourself to him. The Holy Spirit will interpret for you how you ought to pray. The Son brings that request to the Father. Seek his glory, and he will give you that desire. The next set of principles drawn from the text flow naturally from the previous set. Once we know that God can be trusted, the next logical step is trust him. There seems to be a progression in the strength of Hezekiah's faith where first he moved from trusting in the arm of man. Then he calls for prayer. And finally, he himself is praying that God's name would be made great. It seems simply trusting God isn't always simple. I don't know what trusting will look like in your circumstances. It may be different for each one of us. Some should simply wait on the Lord to act on their behalf. Others should act as he directs. We should live in the faith of God's promises. I can hear what some of you are saying. Hezekiah received a promise. What's my promise from God? A few weeks ago, Brad mentioned that when I share with you these chapters in Isaiah, that I'd be talking to you about the difference between Ahaz seeking help from Egypt and Hezekiah seeking help from Egypt, but with very different conclusions. I wish I were sitting there with you, listening to him explain it this morning. Explain why it is that God judged Ahaz for his distrust and disobedience, but yet extended grace to Hezekiah in moments of his distrust and disobedience. When I was praying through my unemployment, I wrestled with this. How do I know which career pursuit is trusting God and which is not? How do I tell what method of job application is honoring God and which way reveals a disobedient heart? At what point does my trust in God's plan and God's timing demand that I act or not act? At what point do my actions reveal a lack of trust on my part? Or am I simply called to act on faith? I wish I had an easy explanation like, this is the formula, just follow it. Ahaz ignored the formula and Hezekiah followed it, so there you go. But we've seen that Hezekiah was only relatively good king, Hezekiah. Not perfect, but relatively good. Actually, throughout the history of Judah's kings, he was a great king, but still flawed with pride and lack of faith, like me. What's the difference then? How do we make sense of Hezekiah being described as good? I think we struggle with this because we still struggle to understand grace. Ahaz's heart was against God, and his actions revealed it. Hezekiah was said to be completely following God, even though some of his actions 
were not consistent with that. God extended grace to Hezekiah. From that point, it was the object of Hezekiah's faith, not the strength of it, that made the difference between him and his father. God's grace is not arbitrary, nor does he simply excuse our moral faults. Look again at God's promise to deliver Jerusalem. Why does he do it? For my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. He sends judgment for his sake and he extends grace for his sake. I'm thankful that at the beginning of the sermon series, Brad brought to our attention James Hamilton's summary of biblical theology. Do you remember what it is? God's glory in salvation through judgment. Through judgment. Your sins and mine must be atoned for. And I think the last part of the verse help us understand how this is. Look at it again. For the sake of my servant David. It's easy to identify Hezekiah with his metaphorical David. Hezekiah was a descendant of David, sitting on his throne, king of the nation, who, though flawed, sincerely believed and followed after the Lord, as David did. And the Lord blessed him. But I think there's more going on here. Last week, we heard from David Calvert in chapters 34 and 35 how King David is a type or a foreshadow of a greater David who is yet to come, who will subdue all the Lord's enemies. Remember, our chapters today serve as a bridge to God's ability to provide a Redeemer. Later chapters describe this Redeemer as God's servant. This servant is the root of Jesse, who David, David himself calls Lord. The servant is called David because like King David, he trusts fully in God, but he does so perfectly. He does all that the Father commands, and he will sit on the throne forever. Without saving for himself a remnant, Hezekiah's line would be cut off. Without a remnant, there would be no Messiah. Without a Messiah, there would be no salvation. Without salvation, where would be the glory of God? If you are in Christ, get this, if you are in Christ, your sin has been paid for forever in the cross of Christ. For the sake of the joy set before him, Christ endured the shame, the suffering, the judgment of the cross. God's glory in your salvation through Christ's judgment. What does a man of faith look like? He looks like Jesus. And can we ever measure up? But we can't do like Hezekiah did. Throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Let him act for his own glory and the good of those who are in Christ. In so doing, he will establish, he will establish in us a bold faith. Yahweh is in control. He is 
faithful, and he is gracious. And he responds to our prayer. We can trust him. For some, he manifests his glory in judgment. For others, he is pleased to manifest his glory in salvation through Christ's judgment. But the question remains for us, in whom are you now trusting? If you are not yet in Christ, not yet experienced gracious relationship with God, he says today is the day of salvation. You're not promised tomorrow. You may make it home and feel that you've escaped his words of judgment today, but he has appointed a day of judgment. Just because you don't see it yet doesn't mean it's not coming. Sennacherib must have thought he was lucky to escape with his life that day. He headed home for the safety of the borders of Assyria. For 20 years, he thought he had escaped judgment from Yahweh. Finally, though, in the house of his God, Yahweh brought judgment. He is patient, yes, and faithful to bring judgment. The same message Yahweh told his people in Jerusalem, Jesus Christ tells you today. Stop looking elsewhere for rescue from judgment. Trust me alone for salvation. Jonathan Edwards stated it plainly, quote, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. On the cross, Christ has taken your sin and judgment and exchange given his goodness and blessing. If only you turn and trust him. I pray today your answer to our question is, I trust Jesus alone because he acts in covenant faithfulness to his word for his glory and my good. Christian, 20 years is a long time to wait for delivery on a promise. If, like Hezekiah, you have experienced delivery from the enemy, but yet you're struggling to trust God for full deliverance in circumstances today, trust that he is faithful. He will deliver on his promises. He is patient, yes, and faithful to bring salvation. His grace comes as daily bread. Trusting during this tension between what we see that God says and what we see means his greatest glory and our greatest good, our salvation through Christ's judgment. What trial is this world bringing your way? What threat and deceit is Satan throwing at you? What challenge to your faith are you facing today? To answer the question, in whom are you now trusting? Jesus says to you, trust me alone for your salvation. As we close this portion of the service where we see, where we hear the gospel heard, and we move towards where the gospel is seen, I'm reminded of the first prayer that many children learn. God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food. We may smile at that, but I think there's something more here than we may initially think. God is great, 
He's in control of all that happens. He has power to do whatever he pleases. It's good then that he's also a good God. He is gracious. All that he does is right. Last week we learned in chapters 34 and 35 that Judah was reminded of the exodus and deliverance from a desert to a garden. Oswald again reminds us the temporary restoration promised here in chapter 37 is a sort of down payment upon that full and final restoration made possible through Christ. The sign that God gave Zion was a sign of remembrance so that when they see it, they remember what God did to deliver them from their enemies. And they look forward to the day of fulfilled promise, full salvation, the death of Sennacherib, the destruction of Assyria, and the return of the remnant. So too for us, this table is a table of remembrance, reminding us of what Christ has done to deliver us from the enemy. We eat it, looking forward to that day when our salvation is full and complete. Death is put to death, and the remnant enters a new garden, forever to be with our Lord. Come to this table with thanksgiving and in faith. Because ultimately, it is only a great and a good God that we can celebrate. Let's pray. And as we pray, I'll ask our elders, deacons, and worship team to come forward. Lord God, we do recognize that you are great and you are good. You are faithful and gracious. Bless the hearing of your word even now as we turn to celebrate your Christ, our Savior. Use your spirit. Spirit, Lord, apply this word to our lives that we may hear and obey. We may learn to fully trust you. in Jesus' name, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.